Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Um, as we start into the second conference here, I, I, I would love just a few moments if we could just open up any, any feedback or thoughts about, in particular, that last video. What was maybe striking you, moving you? Uh, what, was, what was moving in your heart with that last video? If anybody care to share? I know I said we weren't going to sit in a circle and share, but now I'm asking you to share. So if anybody has anything, anything you'd like to share, I'd, I'd love to hear anything from what was moving in you from that last video. The joy of that sun. The joy of that sun. Yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing video. Golly. Anybody else? Anything else? I'm switching races. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Don't be too quick, right? Yeah. This, this video, that Gillette commercial, came out before they did the whole the toxic masculinity one. So they lost their way a little bit. But that's, that's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's really beautiful. Here, here's what I want us to notice about that video, that the, that the grandfather in that video, the one who had the stroke, we can all imagine his life as it has, that his life once was a life of, just like anybody, other, anybody else's life, it was a life where he was capable. And I mean, you saw that, that whole thing about his arms, his arms were like Popeye, strong arms, he you know, ran this, that boat. Um, those beautiful old pictures. He had that strong, broad chest, a man capable of so much that he was rock. He was solid, protector, provider for his family. I'm sure he was a, I'm sure he was a good disciplinarian. He just, he just looks like that. Like he looks like he have a good slap to him or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, but over the course of his life, things started changing. Right. I was in the nursing home doing mass about five years ago at my first assignment. And I had this moment, this, this sort of, this moment celebrating Mass with these folks in the nursing home. None of them knew that I was there, by the way. Um, and there was probably six folks in the nursing home there for this Mass that particular day. He was asleep. She was, uh, like, eating her own tongue. He was, had his hand up like this the whole time. Pretty sure this person had, like, gone to the bathroom. Like, I mean, it was just one of those moments where I'm like, what is going on right now? And in the midst of that, I, like the Lord suddenly like flashed this image of all of them as like kindergartners. Because at one point they were, right? At one point they were these little ones. Like at one point, like this lady here who, who clearly has no idea what's going on, maybe at one point this woman was the one who like helped deliver all the babies in town. Maybe this guy, he was the mechanic who could fix anything. Maybe she over here, she had the best blueberry pie recipe. Like at one point they were capable and amazing, full of life, full of vigor, and imperceptibly over the course of their life, like this man, Jesus came along and was like this merciful thief and slowly started taking things. Like for this guy, like bit by bit, maybe he took his eyesight first and then his really good hearing then he took his ability to cut his own food. He took his ability to live by himself. He took away his ability to shower and take care of himself, dress himself. Like, and over the course of his life, he was made weaker and weaker and more and more dependent. And he was returning to how things were at the beginning. 
right? And as this unfolded, do you suppose that it was hard for him to accept that? Probably. Like, we, I don't know his story, but I would imagine that if he's like any man, it was probably hard for him to accept that. But as all of that unfolded, do you suppose that his weakness, his neediness, his littleness, his dependency, did it make him less lovable or more lovable? It's not really a trick question. Like, it was, it's so clear in the eyes of his son, like, it's so clear that as his father's own weakness and vulnerability and littleness and dependency, as more and more of that came up and out and into the open, it just elicited from his own son more and more love. That the response to vulnerability, the response to littleness, weakness, dependability, or dependency is not rejection, harshness, it's even more love. It's even more love. Like, what did he say? Like, after I've poured love into him all day long, he looks up at me and he asks, how did I get so lucky? Why is it then that most of us, for most of our lives, kind of labor under this idea that weakness, that which makes us weak, littleness, dependency, makes, like, that that stuff makes us rejectable? Why do we labor under this thought that all of that makes us unlovable, in particular, less a man? Here's, here's what we're going to explore this afternoon here. It's because we don't know we're beloved sons. And we don't live out of our sonship as the deepest identity. Like Our identity is often very fragile. We live out of something else, but not necessarily the identity of the beloved son. And for most of us, a lot of that has to do with our own dads and our own childhoods. And because of what we didn't get there, because of what we did get there, on the one hand, we, we have a hard time believing and abiding in this idea that I am the beloved son. This is, this is a hard talk to give, and it's a hard talk to receive. Because we're tempted to paper over, to gloss over, and ignore all of that stuff. One, because we think it's dishonoring. We think it's dishonoring to say that my parents, my dad, didn't do for me what I needed, on the one hand. And on the other hand, we don't want to look at this or listen to this because it forces us to consider, perhaps, our own failures as dads. So I want to talk about both of those responses for just a moment. We were made for God's love. Like, that's, that's the architecture of our humanity. That we have, as the church fathers called it, kapax dei, a, capa a capacity for God's love. That we are capacitated, alone among the creatures that God has made, to receive God's love, to abide in God's love, to live in God's love. That we were originally constituted in an environment where all of that was given to us in superabundance. Remember, like, this image of Andy Dufresne, right? We are constituted originally in this posture of open to receive perfectly the gratuitous, indulgent love of the Father. This is what we were made for. This is what we were made for. All of that love, all of that glory, all of that beauty, all of that goodness. 
But this is not where we were born. This is not where we enter the story. We didn't enter the story in our natural habitat, right? The natural habitat of the human heart is Eden. It's paradise. Look around. We ain't in paradise, right? Wadsworth's pretty good, right? But it's not Eden. It's not Eden. The part of the story that we entered into, we enter the story amidst the battle, amidst the fallen world. Like, we enter the story here. Like, we enter the story amidst the shipwreck of the Titanic, where all the debris is floating. Like, we enter the story in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a fallen world. Like, with wounded and bloody and broken family lines, where generations pass sins down from person to person, from parent to child. That's where we live. Like, we come into the world looking for God's perfect love, right? We enter this world with hearts that are looking for God's perfect love. And what do we end up finding? We find our mom and dad, who as beautiful and as wonderful as they are, they cannot love us with God's perfect, infinite love. They tried. They try. Right? Given the benefit of the doubt, they did the best they could, but they themselves were wounded and coping and an imperfect image of God's perfect love. But the thing is, it's not all bad, right? Jesus describes our whole reality, our hearts, as this field filled with weeds and wheat. That's the truth. There's both goodness and glory and pain and brokenness. It all comes together. It's all in the stew. But here's the thing. If we ever hope to heal, if we ever hope to heal, to have to, like, we have to begin trying to tell our stories truly. And this is what I mean by that. Like, if we ever want to have actual healing and not just coping mechanisms or, like, placebos, right, Jesus just saying, try harder. If we actually want to have real transformation where love touches and penetrates every part of our humanity, then we have to be honest. We have to be honest about what's really going on in there. Like, what we really felt and what we are really still feeling. Like, even though it might be decades ago, and we might tell ourselves, my God, man, like, get over it. You were, like, six years old. Grow up. <clears throat> like, do doctors ever ask the question? Like, when, when you come to the, let's say you come to the emergency room, you've got this gashed open wound. Does the doctor ever say, like, like does he care how old the wound is necessarily? Not, not really. Like, he will heal everything. He's not like, well, I mean, that's been there for like 20 years. Like, you're fine. Like, it's still bleeding. <laughs> if something needs to be healed, he wants to heal it. If something needs to be healed, he wants to heal it. Wounds, this is important. Wounds, no matter how old, they need to be treated. And between now and glory... Everything that's not touched by God's love, it will eventually be touched by God's love. Either in this life or in purgatory. And I promise it's much less painful to let that happen now than to wait for purgatory. If you ever get the chance to go to the Sistine Chapel in Rome, you've got the creation fresco on the ceiling, but on the, the far wall, you've got the last judgment scene. So you've got Christ in the center, sending the righteous souls up to glory and the, uh, the unrighteous down to hell. 
What I never noticed before, this was a few years ago, I got to spend a good amount of time in the Sistine Chapel. On the left-hand side, the side of glory. What's being taken up into heaven, like what the angels and saints are hauling up into heaven, are all of the implements of the passion. So you've got the angels and saints as if they're like hauling the cross up into heaven. And then someone's hauling up the, the column and the nails and the scourges and the whips and the la- like everything that was used in the passion is being taken up into glory. In other words, everything that caused pain, it eventually gets taken up into glory. Everything in your life, everything in your story where there is pain, it eventually has to be touched by God's love so that it can be taken up into glory. Everything. Here's the other part of this. When it comes to not wanting to look at father wounds, it's because we also are afraid of just being confronted with our own failures as dads. Here's the thing. God the Father knows and, like, and has already accounted for the fact that you are not and never were supposed to be a perfect dad. You were never meant to bear that burden. You were never meant to shoulder that cross. There's only one perfect dad, and he's in heaven. <laughs> he's never asked you to be a perfect dad. He already accounted for your failures. Like, he already knew. He already knew the fact that you, like, have already hurt your own kids unintentionally. Like, you've let them down. You haven't, at every moment, given them perfect, unconditional, indulgent love. You haven't at every moment revealed the tender, powerful, merciful face of the Father. There's been times when you've been tired and selfish, and you've been crabby and overbearing, and you've chosen yourself over engaging them. You've manipulated them at times. There's been all sorts of ways, and maybe you've even convinced them on a deep level that they're more lovable because they perform well, inculcating this sort of perfectionistic spirit. Brothers, like, maturing in the spiritual life is recognizing that this is true. Like, it's to recognize that this is true, but don't despair of that. Why? Because the Father loves your kids more than you love your kids. He loves them way more than you love them. And he intends to use their wounds to draw them into a relationship with him. Like, your failures become this sort of holding space that God invites them to come, like, come seek the perfect father. It's like the breadcrumb trail that he leaves in their world. Like, he's already accounted for it. Like, don't try and screw them up more, okay? Just, like, don't, like, look for God the Father. Like, don't do that. But at the same time, don't despair. God's already taken into account your inadequacy. He's never asked you to be him in that perfect reflection. So don't despair. Coraggio. All right? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, St. Paul says that every fatherhood under heaven and earth is named after you. That in this talk here, Father, I ask you to give us the grace to open our hearts as sons to receive a declaration of sonship. That you love us and you call us beloved. Again, we entrust this time to you, Mary. We place ourselves in your womb. As sons in the Son, we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, St. Joseph, John the Beloved, St. John Paul the Great, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So just a few weeks ago, there was a, a few of us here in the parish who were part of this trip that went to the Holy Land. Uh, it was a pilgrimage that was arranged through Damascus Catholic Mission Campus down in Centerburg. I had the great good fortune of being the chaplain for this trip. And uh, anyway, on February, I think it was the 26th, we went to the Jordan River Valley with the group, and I got to wade into the freezing, murky waters of the Jordan River. Um, picture in your mind, what do you think the Jordan River looks like? Picture it, bring it to your mind. I bet it doesn't look like this. <laughs> it's kind of muddy. <laughs> yeah, this is the Jordan River. So there was a handful of folks in the group who wanted to actually, so we renewed our baptismal promises, and what I intended to do was just kind of like be by the, the shore there and just splash people with the water. There was a group of folk, folks who wanted to actually fully submerge into the water. So what that meant was that Father here, like the good idiot that he is, had to wade all the way into the water, and with each person like, bring them down and bring them back up, and it was a real sort of Billy Graham moment. It was pretty great. We had a real revival down at the Jordan Valley, so it was so cold. I'm like, this is what the Titanic people felt like before they died, right? I was really in touch with my humanity. Anyway, in the midst of feeling like I'm dying of hypothermia, I had this uh, beautiful moment at, at, at a certain point um, reflecting on what happened there, right? It might not have been that exact spot, but that's the Jordan River. It happened somewhere along the Jordan River, where Jesus at one point came to the Jordan River, entered those waters, John the Baptist submerges him in the waters, he comes up out of the water, and it says the heavens are rent open. And a voice comes down from the heaven, declaring of Jesus the Son, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. I was imagining this moment. Brothers, this is where it all begins. This is where we have to return as the foundation of our identity, as sons. Because like, this declaration that was spoken over Jesus at his baptism was spoken over you at your baptism and is spoken over you at every moment that you turn to the Father. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And please notice this, that, that if Jesus, who is the Son of God incarnate, God in the flesh, if Jesus in his humanity needed to hear his Father say this to him, how much more so do we need this? Like if he, if he needed to hear his Father say, you are my Son, and with you I am well pleased, before he launches into his mission, how much more so do we need this? We need to hear this. Every son needs to be anchored in the Father's love, in his Father's love. Think about what an anchor does, right? It, it digs into something to give it stability. This is the anchor, to be anchored in our identity, to know that we are beloved. This is the foundation. Let's watch this. Every little boy growing up has two essential needs from his dad. He needs to know that his dad adores him. He needs to know, I love you. That's core, that comes first. That's the base for everything else. That's the foundation that everything else in the boy's life is built on. I love you. I am the apple of my dad's eye. He needs to know that. 
and he needs to know from his father, son, you have what it takes. See, that's the, little, that's the question every little boy has. Do I have what it takes? Will I be a man, right? Can I come through? And so through the story of his life, through the, the tender years, the teenage years, on into young manhood, every man craves this. These two things, love and validation, okay? Delight from the father and affirmation. Jesus in the desert, in the Jordan, receives the Father's blessing, right? He receives this declaration. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. With you I delight. And then it immediately, what happens next is he's driven into the wilderness. <laughs> he receives this declaration that he's driven into the wilderness to be tested, to find out that he has what it takes, right? That's what happens. He receives this blessing from his father, and he's driven out into the wilderness. It's a beautiful image of Jesus in the wilderness by a French artist named Britton Riviere. <laughs> you say it. <laughs> but just take a second, just look at this, right? We talk about Lexio Divina in the church, right? Sacred reading. Let's just do a little Lucio Divina here for a moment. Just sacred looking. Take it in for a second. Linger with this image. Drink it in. Does he look strong and powerful? <laughs> no. He looks very weak. He looks very human. He looks very fatigued. He looks like he's at the limit. Has anyone here ever felt that? Exhausted, fatigued, frayed, spread thin spent at the limit. And it's precisely at this moment that that's when the enemy comes to him to tempt him. And how does he tempt him? He tempts him by, by questioning his identity. If you are the son of God, do such and such and such. If you, if you are the son of God. Like, and again, notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't respond by like puffing up his chest and saying, I've got this. I am the son of God. Huh, here's uh, bread. Huh. No, it's, it's as if he just runs to the father, like wraps himself in scripture, wraps himself in the word of his father and responds with that. He runs and hides in the father. My brothers, one of the things that I have like felt in myself over the years and one of the patterns that I have seen in men just in walking with and, and counseling and confession is that when we're in this place, spent, fatigued, at the limit, empty, right, we often hear or sense or feel this sort of litany of statements that I am alone, that nobody is coming for me. It all depends on me and I have to get it right. I'm alone. Nobody is coming for me. It all depends on me, and I, ha I have to get it right. Do you know who talks like this? Who, th who thinks like this? I I'll, I'll tell you who certainly doesn't. A, a son, a beloved son, a child who knows his father's love, 
doesn't think like this. Abandoned ones speak like this. It's the, it's the orphan spirit that speaks like this. This sort of self-sufficient spirit that speaks like this. Self-sufficient orphans, self-sufficient dads who are all alone and think that it all depends on them and they have to get it right. And maybe you're thinking right now as you're hearing this, like, I've never not thought like that. I've never not had that pattern in my mind. Like, I, I, I feel like I have been alone my whole life. It has always depended on me. I've always had to pick myself up by my bootstraps. I've always had to, to, to do it. I want to say to you right now that, like, that kind of thinking, that's like a demonic mole. That's what that is. What's a mole? It's, it's, a, it's like a spy, right, from the enemy, an enemy adversary who has disguised himself to blend in and to not be noticed, to appear to be like just one of us, right? The enemy acts like a mole within our thinking that he blends in and he, and he just becomes, it becomes so familiar to our interiority, the way that we think and the way we, that we operate that it just, we lose the sense that that, doesn't, that didn't originate in me. That line of thinking, that came from somewhere else. In our hearts, there are these ways of thinking, these ways of coping, these ways of reacting and responding that feel so completely natural to us. But in the final analysis, there are moles that came from the enemy who wants our sabotage, who wants us to not live in our sonship, to not know that we have a father, right? And so like in the name of Jesus, right? So like if that way of thinking is in there, in the name of Jesus, bind in silence and cast that out. That voice that says I'm alone, that no one's coming for me, that it all depends on me, that I have to get it right. In the name of Jesus, I silence that voice and cast it out, send it to the foot of the cross. Because that's a voice from hell. What we, need, what we need is the Father to tell us who we are. What we need is that voice animating our interiority. My brothers, where do we hear that voice speaking to us? In the scriptures. In the scriptures. I want to share something with you real quick here. That, but I want, to, I want to set it up first. So have you ever had the experience of, of sharing something with somebody that like is very precious and valuable and meaning to you, meaningful to you, but like you share it with someone and they're just kind of like, they don't get it. They think it's weird. They think it's bizarre. And you just like want to shrivel up and die, right? Like, am I the only one? No? Okay, good. There's some. Okay. Thanks, Taylor. <laughs> yeah. Like... I want to share with you now something that, that I, I was first exposed to when I was in high school. So this is going back a ways. I was exposed to this in high school, and I've returned to this many, many times. And the thing about it is, like, the narr- it's, it's, a, it's someone reading something. It's called the Father's Love Letter. Someone's narrating it, and, and the voice can be a little bit cheesy. Maybe some of the words are a little bit cheesy. But what it is, it's, it's lines from Scripture that this is the Father speaking to you, Right? And I, I just want to set it up this way, just to say, like, this is coming from a very precious place of my own heart that I've returned to again and again and again. Because this is what the Father says. Like, th- like when you put it all, in some ways, all together, this is what he's communicating to us. So, with that background, knowing that some of it's a little bit cheesy, if it moves you, great. If you don't like it, you're going to hell. All right? So, <laughs> just kidding. Here we go. 
words you are about to experience are true. They will change your life if you let them. For they come from the very heart of God. He loves you. And He is the Father you have been looking for all your life. This is His love letter to you. My child, you may not know me, but I know everything about you. I know when you sit down and when you rise up. I am familiar with all your ways. Even the very hairs on your head are numbered, for you were made in my image. In me you live and move and have your being. For you are my offspring. I knew you even before you were conceived. I chose you when I planned creation. You were not a mistake. For all your days are written in my book. I determined the exact time of your birth and where you would live. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb and brought you forth on the day you were born. I have been misrepresented by those who don't know me. I am not distant and angry, but am the complete expression of love. And it is my desire to lavish my love on you, simply because you are my child and I am your father. I offer you more than your earthly father ever could, for I am the perfect father. Every good gift that you receive comes from my hand, for I am your provider and I meet all your needs. My plan for your future has always been filled with hope, because I love you with an everlasting love. My thoughts toward you are countless as the sand on the seashore, and I rejoice over you with singing. I will never stop doing good to you, for you are my treasured possession. I desire to establish you with all my heart and all my soul, and I want to show you great and marvelous things. If you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. Delight in me and I will give you the desires of your heart, for it is I who gave you those desires. I am able to do more for you than you could possibly imagine, for I am your greatest encourager. I am also the Father who comforts you in all your troubles. When you are brokenhearted, I am close to you. As a shepherd carries a lamb, I have carried you close to my heart. One day, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and I'll take away all the pain you have suffered on this earth. I am your Father, and I love you even as I love my Son Jesus. 
for in Jesus my love for you is revealed. He is the exact representation of my being. He came to demonstrate that I am for you, not against you, and to tell you that I am not counting your sins. Jesus died so that you and I could be reconciled. His death was the ultimate expression of my love for you. I gave up everything I love that I might gain your love. If you receive the gift of my son Jesus, you receive me. And nothing will ever separate you from my love again. Come home and I'll throw the biggest party heaven has ever seen. I have always been father and will always be father. My question is, will you be my child? from that is is a line from scripture it's pretty incredible when you hear it all put that way St. Paul he, he puts it this way he says that we've received a spirit of adoption through which we cry out Abba Father it's really curious like why did Paul say that or why did he say it that way using that phrase and why not just say we've received a spirit of sonship why a spirit of adoption why not say we were made children of God because, because of the cultural context in which Paul was writing and the people who were listening to him. Like just as now, so back then, adoption was a very intricate legal process. It was a very intricate legal process that there were great implications for the adopted person that if he or she had debts before they were adopted, those debts upon their adoption were totally wiped clean. They became the inheritor. They, they were a joint heir with all natural born children within that family. They were the same inheritor of all rights and duties, privileges, responsibilities of that family, it was seen that they had a completely new identity. They were a new person. Like those debts belong to that person. That person doesn't exist anymore. Here's a new person. You can put it this way, a new creation, right? But here's the kicker that maybe we don't get in our modern context, that in the ancient world, there was no presumption of permanency with parentage. What does that mean? It means this, that the pater familias, the head of the family, his wife gives birth to a child, he would inspect the child, and if there was something about the child that he found distasteful, right, if there was some birth defect that he didn't like, or some birthmark that he didn't appreciate, or if it was a girl he wanted a boy, it was completely legitimate for him to take the child to the edge of the city, leave the child outside the city for the child to, to effectively die, to abandon the child. What about adoption? What about adoption? No such exceptions were made for children who were adopted. Why? Because the thinking was this, that you knew what you were getting into. You knew what you were getting into. 
In other words, to, to say in the ancient world, like Paul is saying, to say in the ancient world that I've been adopted is to say my father will never abandon me. I'm not abandonable. He will never abandon me. And like that is what happened at our baptism. We received a spirit of adoption. We received Jesus' filial identity, is how the catechism puts it. We received the deepest identity of the Son, so much so that when the Father looks at you, He doesn't just simply see you, He sees His Son in you. He loves you with the love that He loved His Son. We often think this, that like, the Father really loves Jesus, and He likes us, you know? Like, he's, Jesus gets Coke, and we're like Diet Coke, you know? Diluted, way less bad, you know, not, not the goodest form of Coke. That's not true. It's not true. We move the heart of the Father with the same, the same way that Jesus did. And yet, and yet, this is the point of this afternoon, we live perpetually as if we're orphans. As if that's not true. As if we're auditioning for a part in the family of God, or like, or if, if we screw up one more time, we're going to completely lose it all. Like, that's how we live perpetually. Not with this spirit of adoption, but with this orphan spirit that's nervous and hoarding love. I think many of us carry this fear that says that, I, like, I've done so much. I've screwed up in so many ways. Like, how could I really be, how could I really come home? How could I really come home to the Father? I've, I've squandered it. I have forfeited it. I know you've heard the story a million times. Hear it a million and one more. <laughs> Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's talking to people who think that they've secured their place because of their performance. Because we've followed the law to such an exactitude, we've secured our place. And because these other people don't know how to follow the law like we do, they're not as good. They're not welcome at the table. Jesus is talking to them. He addresses this parable to them. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that falls to me. Let me ask you, when do you typically get an inheritance? At death. The son is coming to his dad saying, Dad, you're dead to me. I want now what should come to me after you die. You're dead to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country. And he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. And now comes the point of the parable. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, all, lo, all these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Like the, the tragedy of the story is not the, the, the younger son's failure. The tragedy of the story is the older brother. That you can live in the father's house and not know that you are a son that you can live in the Father's house and labor under the delusion that you are a hired worker, that you relate to the Father as a slave to a master. This is where so many of us are. This is where so many of us are. We live in the Father's house, come to Mass, daily Mass, Sunday Mass. We live in the Father's house, but we do not yet know that we are sons we think that we're working for God, that he's the master, we're the slave. That younger sons, his grave error, he was certain, he was certain that he blew it. He was certain that he couldn't come home. That if he did come home, he was certain that he had lost his right to be a son. That the best he could hope for is being a hired slave. And was that true? No. The entire time, the father is leaving the house, looking at the horizon every single day, searching for his son. Maybe this is going to be the day that my son comes home. Every single day, the father's heart was moving towards his son. His heart was ready for his son to come home. The son was settled to be a hired slave. 
Again, what did John Paul II say about original sin? It attempts to abolish fatherhood, leaving in its wake only the notion of the master-slave relationship. Placing in doubt the truth about God who is love and leaving man with only a sense of the master-slave relationship. This is what sin does for us. That the enemy comes in and says, that right there, that thing that you did, you're just, you've just squandered it. You've lost it. You've, you've, you've messed up too many times. Or you've been so neglectful of your prayer life too many times. The Father doesn't want you. The best you can hope for is just being a slave in the Father's house. The Father insists, you will come home and you will live with me again. And you will be my son you haven't lost anything. You haven't lost anything. I want to show you another clip from another movie here, or from a movie. I haven't shown you one yet. This is from the movie Blood Diamond. Anybody seen the movie Blood Diamond before? It's a great Leo DiCaprio movie. It's the story of this, uh, this, this father, this African father named Solomon Vandy, who he is kidnapped, for, for lack of a better term, sent to search for diamonds. He's part of this diamond mining operation. And he comes across this massive diamond because it's so big. It's this amazing thing. And he ends up hiding it and burying it. And he teams up with this, this character who pl is played by Leo DiCaprio. And uh, anyway, Solomon's son, his son's name is Dia. Dia had been taken captive by this, this Congo militia. He became one of those child soldiers in the Congo. And just like in reality, when the movie they depict this, that his son Dia is forced to, he's doing all, he's drinking all sorts of booze, he's taking all sorts of drugs, there's all these awful things with girls, and he's murdering villagers, and he's just doing awful, awful things. And in this scene here at the end, Solomon's going to retrieve the diamond with Leo DiCaprio's character, and Dia comes upon them. I want you to listen to what the father says to the son, and listen to God the Father speaking through this to you. Dia, what are you doing? Dia! Nyangbe, Nyangbe, what are you doing? Bela Diavanti of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister yonder. And you do, baby? Cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again.
He's reminding him of who he is. Like, this is who you are. I am your father. You are my son. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. Brothers, one of the things I have the great privilege and honor of, of doing a lot is speaking and teaching about sexuality and theology of the body and all these things. And you saw it in that first video, in that first talk, Christopher West talking about how one of the ways that you destroy the culture is through pornography. There is an enemy. There's an enemy who is thrown before the faces of men and women, boys and girls, this counterfeit. And so many of us, so many men in the church find themselves so bound up in this stuff. And if that's you, You have done bad things, but you are not a bad boy. Like right into wounds, right into sins, right into shame, the enemy whispers, you can't go home again. You're too messed up. You've squandered it. No one will love you. He won't accept you. This isn't for you. Brothers, we can't, we can't lose our sonship. You can't mess it up. Before you can do anything, before you've accomplished anything, and long after you lose the ability to do anything, you were beloved, you are beloved, you are seen, you are cherished, you matter to the Father. Like, do you recall, those of you who are fathers, do you recall how it felt that first time you were holding your, that first baby that made you a father? Do you remember the feelings that swelled up in your heart? And if you who are fallen and broken and sinful can feel that, how much more so the Father for you? How much more so? Like if your little heart is capable of feeling feelings and love that big, how much bigger is the Father's love for you? Like my brothers, I know, I know it, it, many of you have so much riding on you. I know you've done so much. I know that many of us have squandered much. But the father looks at you and says, you are my son. You light up my world. You are the apple of my eye. I delight in you. I, I find you fascinating. You're wonderful. You've never been alone. Nothing really ultimately depends on you. And it's okay if you don't get it right. Jesus, again, Jesus came to reveal the face of the father. Philip at the Last Supper says, show us the father. And Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The authentic face of the Father is not a tyrant. He's not a master. He's not cruel. He's not angry. He's not demanding in a way that's impossible for us. He's a Father. He says, I know you're so afraid that I'm going to crush you. I will let you crush me. I know you're so afraid I'm going to take your life. I'll let you take my life. I know that you think that in this hierarchy, that I'm like the big fish and you're the little fish. He's everywhere else. The big fish eats the little fish. I'm going to let you eat me. That's how this is going to go. 
So again, we're going to end here by entering into uh, a song that we're just going to listen to as a prayer. Just like in that Dove commercial, you heard over and over again just one word, Daddy. In Aramaic, in Arabic, in Aramaic, Jesus' language, Daddy is Abba. When we were in the Holy Land, we could hear little kids saying, Abba, Abba. It's the tender title for Father. That's who Jesus is revealing. That upon the cross, he's revealing what the Father's heart is like. He's not this sort of very intense, you know, uh, what's the, it doesn't matter. But he's a, he's a tender Father. He's a tender Father. In this song, let this song be the cry of your heart. Jesus who reveals the face of the Father. Jesus who came to reveal that you are a beloved son. You are not alone. It doesn't depend on you. You don't have to get it right. He he is with you. You've not forfeited it. You've not lost it. Your identity begins here as beloved sons. Again, just for the lay of the land for the the afternoon, we'll have uh, like a 50-minute break. There's going to be some sandwiches and sliders. Again, Jesus is still upstairs. Um, Use the time for prayer. Use the time to connect. Whatever you want to do, it's it's your time, about 50 minutes, and reconvene. I'm terrible at math, at um, hold please. We'll reconvene at 2.35, then the second, the, the, no, I'm so sorry, 3.25. 3.25, third talk will start at 3.30, okay? So let's enter into this as a final prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
Thoughts define me 